Now this evening we're looking at Luke chapter 2, first 20 verses. And I think in order to get the text in front of us, I'll read this pericope, um, which is familiar, but I trust uh, you'll see some things that you've not seen before. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as it had been told to them. Now, we have placed heavy emphasis thus far in this series on narrative patterning, especially narrative location patterns. Chapter 1 from verse 5 following is situated in the realm of the king of Judea, on location in two of the regions of Herod's domain, Judea proper and Galilee, the homes respectively of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary. Now, here in verse 1 of chapter 2, Luke shifts his focus to the king of the world, the Akumene, as the Greek of verse 1 indicates. Now, if you look at your outline on the first page, the date 27 B.C., which is about halfway down, 
You can see that Greek word there on the page. It's pronounced ukoimene, and it's a word from which we get the English word ecumenical, and it means world, as Luke has used it in this first verse of chapter 2. So he's shifted his focus to the worldwide or the ecumenical extent of the Roman Empire. The story of the life of Christ moves from native Jewish focus, chapter 1, to ecumenical Roman Gentile focus, chapter 2. The king of the Jewish world of Jesus and the king of the Roman world of Jesus. Jewish and Gentile, Jewish and Roman Gentile worlds interfacing in the life of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the living God of the whole ecumene, the whole world. Luke will reiterate this ecumenical focus. Luke will reiterate this ecumenical focus when he records the spread of the message of Christ's life in both worlds, Jewish and Gentile. The spread of the message via the book of Acts, the narrative of Luke, is ecumenical. He was born Gaius Octavius in 63 B.C. He died Caesar Augustus in 14 A.D. His mother was the niece of Julius Caesar. And under Julius Caesar, Octavian, as he was also called, Octavian served in the Spanish campaign of 46 B.C. He was away soldiering in Albania, or ancient Illyricum. Now, if you look at your map, you'll be able to see Illyricum, if you know where modern Albania is. It's on the western Balkan Peninsula. It's near the Adriatic Sea. And you can see it above the M in Macedonia, or opposite C, which stands for the Sea of Adria, Adria or the Adriatic Sea, Illyricum, Dalmatia, as it's also known, modern-day Albania. This is where Octavian was when he received the news of Caesar's assassination in Rome by Brutus and Cassius. The event marked by that famous statement, beware the Ides of March from from William Shakespeare's remarkable play, of that title, Julius Caesar. 44 B.C., Caesar dead at the hands of his former friends on the Ides of March, March 15. On his return to Rome, Octavian also learned that he had been adopted as Julius Caesar's son, by the terms of Caesar's last will and testament. And so in 44 B.C., as you can see from your outline, Octavian became Caesaris Filius, or Caesaris Filius, depending upon whether you take classical or ecclesiastical pronunciation of the Latin. 
Now, that phrase means son of Caesar. The Caesaris or Caesaris is in the genitive case. The I-S tells you it's the genitive, which <coughs> includes the possessive case. So you put a of before the word son of Caesar in 44 B.C. for Octavian. Octavian then <coughs> proceeded to gather a triumvirate. Three powerful soldiers to lead the Roman world and, and don't forget the connection here, don't forget the conjunction, and exact vengeance upon Caesar's murderers. Mark Antony and Lepidus joined Octavian in a threesome which pursued Brutus and Cassius to Philippi. Now, on your map, you can find Philippi just below the H and R in Thrace. And Thrace is the eastern part of the Macedonian Balkan region. Yes, that's the same Philippi to which Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians. Does anyone know why that city was called Philippi? Ben? Some battle? Not not quite. Marge? I was going to say it's um, named after Philip of Macedon. It's named after Philip II of Macedon. And, and who is he? Why, why is he significant? He's the father of Alexander the Great. Yes. <clears throat> the city was named for the father of Alexander the Great. <clears throat> Philip II of Macedon. Well, it was to this city that the triumvirate pursued Brutus and Cassius, pursued them to Philippi in Greece, defeated their armies, while the two assassins, that is Brutus and Cassius, committed suicide. Now, suicide in the ancient world, particularly the ancient Roman world, was a matter of going out of life with honor rather than going out of life dishonored by being imprisoned or brutally crucified or executed in some other more, more <coughs> horrific and humiliating style. So suicide was actually considered a good thing in certain situations in the ancient world. <clears throat> Having dispatched the assassins of Julius Caesar, three members of the triumvirate proceeded to divide the spoils. Mark Antony ruled the east. Octavian ruled the west. And roughly, the division between east and west was the Adriatic Sea. That is roughly speaking. Lepidus was given Africa. Two years later, in 42 B.C., the Roman Senate dutifully, if not foolishly, deified Julius Caesar. And they did so because they said his spirit had been seen to ascend into the Empyrean heavens at his death. And because his spirit, or his genius, his genie, because his spirit had ascended into the Empyrean, he was entitled to apotheosis, that is, to deification. 
And the deification of Julius Caesar meant that Octavian would now call himself D.V. Filius, not any longer Caesarus Filius, but D.V. Filius, which means son of a god. Octavian also took a fancy to the title Caesar, and the die was cast for a struggle for emperor-in-chief, a struggle that occupies or occurs within the triumvirate itself. Struggle for power, nothing new under the sun, politically speaking. Lepidus's power was negligible. He was of no significance, really. Octavius and Mark Antony began a tussle for sole dominion of the Roman Imperium. Mark Antony strengthened his hold on the east by cohabiting with Cleopatra, queen of Egypt, even though she had conceived a son by Julius Caesar, she won among his multiple paramours. Before Antony and Cleopatra, it was Julius Caesar and Cleopatra. Dictators and power-hungry politicians are notorious womanizers. Notorious womanizers. Lascivious Cleopatra was delighted to take Mark Antony to her bed because he was the pawn in her scheme to bring back the glory days of the Egyptian pharaohs, she herself, of course, the queen bee. And so she built her sweet honeypot around herself and attracted Mark Anthony to his downfall. <clears throat> the deciding battle between Octavian and Mark Anthony was fought at Actium, on the west coast of Greece in 31 B.C. Now, if you look at your map again and come down the coast from Illyricum, which is now Albania, down through Macedonia, if you're along the coastline, you'll see Nicopolis and then Actium right below it. In fact, Actium is on a small bay, and that proved to be a fatal uh, matter of strategy with respect to the outcome of this battle. The Battle of Actium there, west coast of Greece, 31 B.C., Octavian versus Mark Antony. Octavian's navy surrounded the fleet of Antony and Cleopatra and therefore sealed them against the opening of that small bay at Actium. Though the two lovers managed to to escape, their ships were destroyed and their army surrendered. The fate of Antony and Cleopatra was sealed. They both committed suicide. Cleopatra, by that famous crossword puzzle answer, the bite of an asp. Octavian wreaked final vengeance on the upstarts by executing the son born of Julius Caesar and Cleopatra. 
Caesar Octavius was now sole and solitary D.D. Filius. If someone is to be D.D. Filius, he said to himself, it most certainly will not be that bastard son born to my desolate, dissolute stepfather and his whore. Octavian will have no competitors for the title Son of God. As emperor of the world, Octavian ruled the Roman Senate and allowed it to sit. He allowed the Senate the Senate to sit and do nothing. To sit and do nothing while he ignored them with his imperial decrees, his imperial edicts, his imperial actions, his imperial will to absolute power. You sit and I act. You keep your place and I'll make sure you know mine. Sick, semper, tyrannis. Now, you notice I've written that out twice on your outline. That Latin phrase, sic semper tyrannis and sic semper tyrannis. The long I on the second one. <clears throat> it's the difference between the nominative and the dative plural in <clears throat> Latin, the long I is the long I of the second declension, dative and ablative plural cases. So the one on the right is the state motto of what state? Sic semper tyrannis. What state? What state of the United States has the state motto Sic Semper Tyrannis? It was hurled into a theater as somebody jumped off the balcony onto the stage. What's that? Assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Who said it? John Wilkes Booth said it. Why did he say it? Because he was from this state. It's the state motto of Virginia. Six Semper Tyrannis, which means thus always, dative case, two tyrants, plural. Well, I said Six Semper Tyrannis. I didn't say Six Semper Tyrannis. So what Six Semper Tyrannis means? <clears throat> Tyrannis here is in the nominative case. <clears throat> It's the collective word for tyranny. Caesar Augustus is acting like tyrants always do, thus always tyrants. You sit and I'll act. You be good senators, do nothings, and I'll do something. After all, you realize that I am the emperor. And you are the serfs of the Senate. He was now given the name Augustus. <clears throat> now, you can translate that a number of ways <clears throat> in Latin. It could mean sacred one. 
can mean revered one. It can mean august one. And the age of Augustus, it launched the nearly two-century-long Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which lasted from Augustus to Marcus Aurelius, who died in about 180 A.D., about 200 years. Civil and internecine wars ceased. The doors of the Temple of Janus, the god of the beginning of war, the doors of the Temple of Janus were closed. For the first time in nearly a 100 years, they were closed. And with the peace came the prosperity. Prosperity and government projects. Rebuild war-scarred Rome with monuments, temples, baths, arenas, Altars, public work projects, put people to work, government will pay the tab, except Augustus launched a fending campaign which required taxes to build those monuments and repair that war damage. Even more revenue sources channeling money into the coffers of the state, the emperor, the cronies of the elite, ruling class. You can believe that none at the top of the pyramid in Augustus's Rome were impoverished by speaking fees or anything else. Augustus did what all tyrants do well. He spent huge sums of money and wowed the crowds with his august personality. His face and picture on every coin his image behind every media event, his story, the only story of importance during his imperial dictatorship. Everywhere he went, he hogged the spotlight. Everywhere. And ruthless? Though he banished his own daughter and granddaughter for adultery, they should have been executed, He was a notorious philanderer and maintained mistresses openly while married to his third wife, a wife whom he had stolen from her original husband. Because, of course, he was the imperial king, the imperial emperor. I want that woman. I know she belongs to you. I know she's been married to you, but I want that woman. So I just took her. Tough rocks for you. None of his sons, fathered via his wives, would succeed him, for they all died prematurely before he succumbed. On his deathbed, Augustus returned to his beginning, naming someone not the fruit of his own body to be his successor, even as he was successor to Julius Caesar and not the fruit of Caesar's body. Caesar Augustus had adopted his stepson, Tiberius, to be his successor and had stolen Tiberius's beloved wife from him so as to force that woman to marry his own daughter, Julia, who was an open adulteress. That is, he forced Tiberius to marry his own daughter, Julia, 
and give up his beloved wife. Tiberius reacted with bitterness, a consequent bitterness which was in part the source of his own hedonistic depravity, the source in part of his own imperial paranoia, the source in part of his brutal tyranny even when he ruled the Roman Empire not from Rome but from his pleasure palace on the Isle of Capri. And you really don't want to read too much about what went on in that pleasure palace on the Isle of Capri. I warn you, you really don't want to read about it. It is ugly. Wretchedly, depravedly ugly. Augustus Caesar brought in the golden age of Roman imperial power. Roman imperial peace, Roman imperial resplendence. He found Rome brick when he arrived and left it marble on his death. His building projects were lavish displays of his civic and national benevolence designed to placate the masses with redevelopment instead of rubble. His imperial reign was designated a new beginning to the history of the world. In Latin, a novus ordo seculorum, or a new order of the ages. He was called a god and savior of the whole human race. His appearance on the stage of history was labeled an epiphany, and his proclamations and rule was Good news for the world. In Greek, euangelion, what we usually translate gospel. His proclamations and rule were the gospel for the world. And that comes from two extant inscriptions, copies of which you have. We'll take a look at the Prien inscription at the top of the page from 9 B.C., And you will notice in the text of the English translation this inscription about Caesar Augustus that on the left-hand side of the English translation, you see about five lines down, Savior bracketed by the Greek word soter. Yes, Augustus was called at Prien, soter. And where is Prien? Prien is in Asia Minor. If you take a look at your map and you can find Asia Minor, which is modern day what country? What country today is Asia Minor? It is Turkey. And on the west coast of Turkey, you will find Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamon, three of the seven churches of the book of Revelation. And below Ephesus, you'll find Miletus. You see that? All right, between Miletus and Ephesus is a little peninsula. It's hard to see on that map, but a small peninsula, and that's where Prien is located, between those two cities. Well, this inscription was discovered there, and it's the text of the inscription that we're referring to. So, Augustus in the east is called Soter, or Savior, His appearance in history, the next line down, is an epiphanane, 
an epiphany. That's how you pronounce that uh, Greek word. And at the bottom, the very last word of the Greek clause there on the left-hand side, bottom of the English translation, theou, that's the word for God in Greek. And before that, euangelion, five words before theou, just count backwards to the word that begins with what looks like an E, euangelion, that's the word for gospel or good news. So the English translation, the God Augustus, was the beginning of the good tidings or gospel for the world. All right, so there's no question about the fact that uh, Augustus was called a soter. And on your outline, you'll notice that I've paralleled the language of this preen inscription with the language of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 14. You see in the Gospel of Mark, euangelion tu theou, which means gospel of God or good news of God. Underneath it, you see euangelion tu theou. The only difference is in the plural, the uh, longer, the, the changed ending, the omega noon with euangelion. But the two, two uh, lines are essentially parallel. In other words, what Mark calls the gospel of God in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the members, the members of the eastern part of the empire, particularly at Prien, are calling the gospel of God Augustus. Now, the cult of the emperor, that is, the worshiper of the emperor as a divine figure, began with Augustus, especially in the eastern regions of the Roman Empire, as you've seen. Well, you haven't seen all of it because there's another inscription that comes from the eastern part of the empire from Halicarnassus, dated seven years after the Prien inscription. And Halicarnassus, if you go back to your map, and you find Miletus again, which you've already located in order to uh, note that Prien is north of it. Halicarnassus is actually south of it. If you see that little uh, dot and C-N-I-D-U-S, Nidus, the city Nidus, Halicarnassus is north of that on a little southern project projection of that portion of Asia Minor. Now, Halicarnassus is famous for one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, famous mausoleum of one of the fourth century kings there. But we're more interested in this inscription dedicated to Caesar Augustus. Notice once again that he is called a god. He is called Zeus Paternal. Zeus Paternal. Zeus is the highest god of the Greek pantheon. And Augustus is given that label. That is, he's the father god, the father god of the whole human race. In addition to being father of the whole human race, he's the savior of the whole human race, as that inscription indicates. So there you have two primary documents from the world of Augustus Caesar, from the time of his life in which he was accorded divine honors. He was actually worshipped in the East as a god, and he was regarded as a savior of the world or of the people, as well as a bringer of gospel good tidings, euangelion good news.
Well, Augustus didn't dare claim emperor worship or divine honors in the West. The Senate might be do-nothing, but the Senate wouldn't tolerate that something. And so he put it off. It was still risky in the West for a man, even an august man, to claim divine status while he was alive. Remember, Caesar, Julius Caesar, had been deified after his death. But Rome would soon graduate from such hesitancy, and with Tiberius Caesar, the worship of the Roman emperor became the state religion. The state religion was to worship the god on the throne. Imperial tyranny always breathes the air of divinity. Imperial tyranny always breathes the air of divinity. The political figure treated and acclaimed a god, a messiah. And when that happens, the figure begins to act and to behave like a god or a messiah. He begins to believe his own press notices. And in the first century Roman culture, the gods were just as sinful as the men and women who invented them and worshipped them. The gods lied and cheated. The gods murdered their competitor gods and devoured their children. The gods practiced sexual license and abominance and aborted children and exposed unwanted babies to death by abandonment. When the Roman emperors, beginning with Augustus Caesar, lied and cheated, when they murdered competitors and indulged every perverse sexual vice, those emperors were only imitating the life of the gods they worshipped. Paganism is ugly business. It is wretchedly, abominably ugly business. You don't know because you haven't lived under it. But the apostles did. And the first century Christians did. Christians of the book of Acts lived under wretched, vicious, immoral, depraved paganism. Because paganism is depraved. It's immoral. It's vicious. And when it gets hold of a culture, when it gets hold of a personality, it reduces that culture and that person to a wretch. That's what it does. Because it draws out the nature of depravity in wretched, sinful men and women and children. Yes, children, too. Deify the emperor means deify the state. And now the one supreme religion of all citizens of Rome is the worship of the almighty state. The one ecumenical religion of the Roman world, the one religion for all, was the religion of the divine emperor ruler, the God-become-man emperor tyrant, who was answerable to no authority above his own. A supreme, absolute ruler 
because a supreme, absolute God on earth. That was the religion of Rome after Augustus Caesar. This divine tyranny soon destroyed the former ordered liberty and freedom under law of the ancient Roman Republic. Liberty from Augustus on was defined by the whim of the emperor and the former law of the Republic was a tradition out of date with the divinity of the wishes, the privileged wishes of the man who sat upon his throne ruling the world by fiat and decree and executive order. But Luke, Luke does not introduce the days of Caesar Augustus in chapter 2, verse 1, to endorse this madness, this tyranny, this blasphemy, this elevation of the Roman imperial state and the Roman imperial ruler to the status of divinity. No, Luke mentions the days of Caesar Augustus to highlight and underscore the antithesis. The radical antithesis between vaunted, uplifted, proud arrogance with its presumption of supremacy, even the divinity of the secular, the antithesis of this abomination with the lowly, humble condescension of the unpresumptuous Son of God, the divinity of the sacred order, the order not of Pax Romana, but the order of Pax Christi. And I conclude this part of the presentation with some words from my article published almost 30 years ago, Pax Romana, Pax Christi, that you have had access to previously in this series, but you have the link on your outline if you want to look at it again. The day of new beginnings arrives in Bethlehem, not Rome. The light of a new age breaks forth in the skies above a stable, not the marbled halls of the Roman Forum. The procession of adoration begins with a lowly virgin, an obscure carpenter, a ragtag band of shepherds, a lonely visionary, and an aging widow. The Messianic age is inaugurated in Judea. The birthday of Jesus is truly the beginning of the Novus Ordo Seculorum, the new order of the ages. He is the Prince of Peace, for he brings a peace which no sword knows. He is the Son of God, for God indeed is his Father. And the good news of his reign is the abundance of mercy. Mercy for the miserable, grace for the undeserving, justice for the unrighteous, and liberty for the captives. The days of Caesar Augustus have faded. The glory of Rome has passed away. Her temples lie in dust. Her arenas are shells, 
honeycombed skeletons. The Circus Maximus is silent. The doors of the Temple of Janus are shut forever. And no son of the Caesars sits atop a marble throne as D.V. Phileas, son of a god. The golden age never arrived. The orient glow has vanished, vanished into darkness. History's verdict, Luke's verdict, Augustus was not Soter, Augustus was not Benefactor, Augustus was not D.V. Phileas, Augustus was not center of Evangelion gospel good news, but Jesus is. Jesus is. And in a world still dominated by pagan veneer and glitter, to a world still manipulated by little Caesars, to a world whose glory is wealth, prestige, success, power, growth, privilege of the highest order, the answer still lies at a manger in Bethlehem. And to Bethlehem's manger, the poor and the lowly and the humble and the outcast And the true believers to that manger, they still repair. For he is the light of eternal ages. All right, we'll take a break there. Unless you have any questions about Caesar Augustus. or his career, or anything related. Okay. Now, if you'll turn to the second page of your outline, we want to begin to work on the structure of this pericope, which is verses 1 to 20 of chapter 2. As we've indicated already this evening, this chapter begins with the worldwide or ecumenical extent of the Roman Empire in verse 1. It spirals down to the region of Syria in verse 2, a region contiguous to Palestine. Then to the next smaller Palestinian region, Galilee and tiny Nazareth. Finally, to arrive at Judah and little town of Bethlehem. The decreasing focus of the camera will at last light upon the smallest of the small. A baby in a small feeding trough. As we move through these successive frames of worldwide to local geography, we are arrested. We are arrested by the apparent insignificance of the little, the tiny, the small, the local in contrast to the august, the great, the large, the apparently insuperable significance of pagan Rome and its client states. 
If the delicious irony here is the truly ecumenical significance of a tiny babe in an unlikely feeding trough crib, then Luke's narrative skill has woven even this sequence into his leitmotif, the bringing down of the proud and the powerful, the lifting up of the lowly and the weak. I am suggesting that there may be, in fact, greater genius behind this incident than is usually seen in the normal, everyday, humdrum, routine Christmas sermon. Now, let's observe the recurrence in our outline structure of the Greek word agenito, translated in the English, it came to pass in the King James Version, it came about in the New American Standard Version, or it happened that as an alternative translation. <clears throat> now, you can see that Greek word in <clears throat> verse 1, verse 6, and verse 15, written onto the outline. <clears throat> the Greek is pronounced a genito. This is a literary <clears throat> rhetorical signal. It is an indicia, that is, a word marking or indicating a section of the narrative. Here in Luke 2, not only a rhetorical signal is indicated by the recurrence of the word agenito, but the position of the marker signals its literary importance and function. It is a structuring device emphatically indicated by its prominent position in verse 1, verse 6, and verse 15. But that emphatic, prominent position is also indicated by where it is in those verses. Agenito is the initial word, it's the first word in the narrative unit as it is, verse 1 and verse 6, or it is prominently close to the initial word of the narrative unit in verse 15, where it follows the first word in the verse. So I'm indicating that agenito, or in translation, <clears throat> it came to pass, is the first word in verse 1. It is the first word in verse 6. It is the second word in verse 15, but it is uniquely and peculiarly at the beginning of each of these verses. And that's a marker. That's a literary marker. That's a rhetorical indicia, an indicator. Therefore, we would suggest that from the first it came to pass to the second it came to pass is a narrative unit. That is, verses 1 to 5 are a narrative unit. And then from the second it came to pass in verse 6, to the third would be a narrative unit, verses 6 to 14, but that would be problematic, as we shall see. The final narrative unit is signaled by it came to pass, again a toe, in verse 15, 
and extends to the retiring of the shepherds from the story, verses 15 through 20. The shepherds. The appearance of the shepherds in verse in verse eight rather <clears throat> signals a unit unto itself. Their entrance to the drama in verse eight and their exit from the drama, verse twenty, compose a large narrative which includes all the characters. All the characters of this pericope, angels, holy family, visitors, shepherds, etc., all the characters present at the birth of the baby in a manger. However, the shepherd narrative is subordinated to another narrative, the narrative of the angelic epiphany. Singularly, an angel of the Lord, in verse 9. Corporately, a multitude of the heavenly host, in verse 13. Supernatural manifestation. Angelophony. Angelophony. Manifestation of angels. Angelophony, in this case. Supernatural manifestation frames the entrance of the shepherds to the drama. This is crucial. This is crucial for structuring purposes. Crucial because the central feature of this supernatural revelation is the identification of the supernatural child. The supernatural child in the manger. Verse 11 is the focal point of the whole narrative drama from verse 1 to verse 20. But that Savior... That Christ, that Lord Christ Savior, that baby in a manger is the focal point of the interface between the angels and the shepherds. It is the focal point of the interface between the shepherds and the Holy Family. It is the focal point of the interface between the shepherds, the Holy Family, and all the other visitors present in Bethlehem who were drawn into these good tidings of great joy by the decree of Caesar Augustus. You see, there is much more here than the routine Christmas homily. Much more. That means that verse 8 signals a new literary rhetorical narrative unit. But it does so without the prominent agenito. It came to pass. What? Did Luke forget himself? He had started off with agenito in verse 1. He continued with agenito in verse 6. He will finish with agenito in verse 15. He left it out in verse 8. A slip of the pen? A redactor? A different author? Even without the Greek, Agenito, verse 8, is clearly demarcated as a new narrative unit. Now, that's my statement. That's my declaration. Verse 8 is clearly demarcated as a new narrative unit. And now you are going to defend my statement. You are going to suggest to me why I'm saying that. Aren't you? You're going to look at verse 8. 
And you're going to say, well, of course it's a new narrative unit. And I know it's a new narrative unit because of X and Y, or because of reason number one and reason number two. And if you want reason number three and four, I'll be happy to listen to it. But what would you say clues you to the fact that verse eight is a new narrative unit, even though Agenito is not in that line? Very good. Excellent, Ben. Location from where to where, Ben? Okay, from the stable is where? And where are they? Are they in Bethlehem? They're in the fields? There you go. That's what I wanted. Good for you. Okay. All right. This change in scene from in Bethlehem to outside Bethlehem. We've moved the camera. With moving the camera, we've shifted the scene. That's a new narrative unit. All right, what else? What else suggests that we have a new unit here? We have new characters. Who are they, Cheryl? The shepherds. The shepherds are a new community. Applause for the crowd. All right, you've done, you answered my question perfectly and correctly. And now I know I'm right. Thank you for the little workout. Very good. I'm pleased that you came up with it. All right. So, verse 8 is the beginning of the next narrative unit, which means now that we're assured that verses 1 to 5 are the first narrative unit. Verses 6 and 7 are the second narrative unit, small though it may seem. And verse 8 begins the third narrative unit in this 20-verse pericope. And in support of those divisions, notice the elements of coherence. The elements of coherence which bind these units together while distinguishing them even further apart from the agenito marker in and of itself. The first unit of this 20-verse pericope, verses 1 to 5, is distinguished by what I take to be passive infinitives. Now, I recognize, all you Greek scholars out there, I recognize there's a debate about the grammar of these words that I put in parenthesis in 1b, 3, and 5a on your outline. But you'll notice that the word in 1b and 3 is exactly the same. There's a difference in the word in 5a, but it's the same root. These are all infinitives. And I take them as the King James has translated them consistently as passive infinitives. To be taxed, to be taxed, to be taxed. Whether they are middle voice or whether they are passive or active voice is irrelevant in my opinion. The context determines the significance of them. And so, you know, I can be crucified on the grammatical uh, malaprops, but but I'm sticking to the King James guns right here because I think the King James has most consistently translated these infinitives correctly, or at least consistently. Because you look at the New American Standard, you can't even figure out where these infinitives are because they've translated them as census in verse 1 or to register in verse 3 and verse 5. 
To register is an active infinitive. These aren't active infinitives. It's what was to be done by these people. All right, so there's a coherence in this first unit around these passive infinitives. That is the action of going to be taxed, going to the place where you're to be taxed, going to the city where you're to be taxed. That's the coherence that also reinforces the fact from Agenito 1 to Agenito 6, we have a coherent unit versus 1 to 5. Now, the second unit, verses 6 and 7, as you note, your outline is marked by the, by the English words give birth or gave birth. <clears throat> and the Greek verb is tikto, as you can see uh, next to the word birth in 6b and 7a. <clears throat> the verb for give birth is duplicated in verse 6 and 7. Two duplicate occurrences of the same Greek verb, even hooked symmetrically to bind or bring coherence to verses 6 and 7, to bind them coherently together. These two verses hooked together by a hook pattern. Ah, Denison, what are you smoking? I'm not smoking anything. In verse 6, the verb for to give birth is in the next to the last position in the verse. In the Greek text, the verb to give birth is in the second position from the end of the line. And in verse 7, the verb gave birth is in the second position from the beginning of the verse. Da. Ta-da! Look at it. It's in the text. Verb for give birth next to the last word in verse 6. Verb for gave birth next to the first word in verse 7. Agenito marks the beginning of the next unit, a two-verse unit defined by a precise positional hook pattern. This is not an accident. This is an intentional coherent hook device to tie together these two verses into a unit in and of themselves. I told you there's more here than the ordinary Christmas homily. You're beginning to see it? We haven't even started to ask the theological questions. We haven't even started to ask the narrative question. We're just simply setting out what Luke has set out on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in order to segment the narrative and to look at how he progresses through successive narrative interfaces to do what? Well, you can see it on your outline. To keep that child in the manger at the focal point of almost all of the pericopes, all, all the divisions of the pericope, all the units in this 20-verse pericope. The only exception, verses 1 to 5. Look at it. Verse 7, verse 12, verse 16. The baby in the manger. Each of the units, the focal point, the baby in the manger. Well, we've already justified the inauguration of a new narrative unit in verse 8 with the appearance of the shepherds. 
But the word shepherds appears also in verse 15, verse 18, and verse 20. It is thus easy to recognize verses 8 to 15 as the initial shepherd's unit. First occurrence of the name in verse 8, second occurrence of the name in verse 15. This is reinforced by the angelophany, which we have already noted. The angels are in that pericope or in that uh, unit between verse 8 and 15. Thus, the third narrative unit in this 20-verse pericope is verses 8 to 15. Now, by default, we would argue that all that is left is verses 16 to 20. But in fact, verse 15c contains the word shepherds. So as we begin with shepherds in verse 8, we reach a pause or initial climax in verse 15c. Angels and shepherds between 8 and 15c in a self-contained unit. Now, as shepherds closes the angelophany unit, so shepherds opens the visitation unit in 15c. And that visitation unit subsequently closes the word shepherds in verse 20 as they exit Luke's story entirely. Shepherds on stage, verse 8. Shepherds moving from on stage in verse 15c. Shepherds exiting stage right, verse 20. They're gone from the narrative. Angels on camera, verse 9. Angels disappear from the camera, verse 15, angels off camera. The interface between the angels and the shepherds is an interface which centers upon the baby in the manger and his identification. Savior, Christ the Lord, David eyed. That is, not only born in the city of David, but also a son of David, David eyed. We conclude then from a careful analysis of the language and of the vocabulary of this pericope, 20 verses of Luke 2, we conclude that there are four narrative subunits to the birth narrative of Luke, 21, Luke 2, 1 to 20. First unit, verses 1 to 5. Second unit, verses 6 to 7. Third unit, verses 8 to 15b. Third unit, verses 15c to 20. Three of those units are clearly demarcated by the Greek word agenito. It came to pass, one of which is signaled by a scene shift and character shift, verse 8. Four units clearly demarcated by indicators. Now, as I've already pointed out, there is one further justification for distinguishing the units 8 to 15b and 15c to 20. It's the recurrence of the in a manger phrase. It also occurs in the second narrative unit. But the fact that it's repeated in verses 8 to 15, and then in verses 15c to 20, 
indicates that there is a separate narrative focus upon that baby in a manger in those two units. So I'm, I'm confirmed uh, once again uh, with this distinction of, uh, the, of 8 to 15 and 15 to 20 as two sub-narratives of the whole. All right, now there's some other things there that uh, we want to take a look at when we have a chance to expand uh, with comments and theological analysis, biblical theological analysis, but we, we've got our parameters down. We've got the structure down. We've got the narrative units down. One more thing uh, before we leave tonight. The narrative pattern at the bottom of the page of that of second page of your outline. We're not going to be able to get to uh, page three this evening. Here is something that Ben had his finger on when he answered the question about the shift in verse 8. If you remember what Ben said, take Ben's thought and let's go back to look at verses 1 to 3, 4 to 5, 6 to 7, 8 to 14, we've already got 15, 16 to 19, and 20. All right, since Ben gave us the shift, In verse 8, we could label 8 to 14 how or what. Let's let Ben give us the label. How would you label that section, Ben? Location? You gave it to me when I asked you. The shepherds are where? They're outside of Bethlehem. That's what I want. They're outside of Bethlehem. All right, so we start by labeling 8 to 14 outside of Bethlehem. How do we label verses 1 to 3? Decree? Where is it? Remember what Ben said. Where is it? It, It's outside of Bethlehem again, isn't it? Verses 1 to 3 are located outside of Bethlehem. What about verse 4 to 5? Bethlehem, verses 4 to 5, to Bethlehem, verses 6 and 7, in Bethlehem, verses 8 to 14, outside of Bethlehem, verse 15, to Bethlehem, verses 16 to 19,
In Bethlehem, verse 20. Outside of Bethlehem, again, notice the pattern. The pattern is sequential. Outside Bethlehem, to Bethlehem, in Bethlehem, to outside of Bethlehem. Then to Bethlehem, in Bethlehem, and we return to outside Bethlehem at the end. The sequence is a narrative paradigm. You're going to follow the action. You're going to follow the camera. You're going to follow while Luke is drawing you into this story down, down, down into that manger in Bethlehem. Shepherds, angels, holy family, all the visitors. We'll come back to that next time. We want to think about all who heard these things. Who are these all who heard these things? Any questions? Yes. Maybe you said that it's eight the shepherds and fifteen seed the shepherds. Is that a framework of angels? Yes. <clears throat> the angels and the shepherds have an interface duplicate framing pattern there. They reinforce one another. Scott? Clarification on Unit 4. Are you saying that Unit 4 begins with 15A Geneto or 15C? Yeah. Then before, I was thought you were suggesting earlier a pattern where units begin with a Geneto. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, you're pushing me. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little fluid there. <laughs> okay. Yes, our point you include the third unit. And after the start of the fourth year? Well, yeah, it, it could. Yeah, he, he's pointing out that to be ruthlessly consistent with my agenito, you start at the beginning of verse uh, 15. <clears throat> I think 15, the agenito at 15 signals a new unit, but I, I don't think it begins until the shepherds reappear at the, in, in the third line of the verse. That may be a little, Quirky, but um, I think the drama justifies it as well. All right, now uh, we'll we'll bring back this structural pattern next time, so you don't need to worry about having it. We want we want to also look at that expansion in verses 15 to 20, which ties the integrity of that unit together in quite significant ways. <clears throat> But we'll leave it here for this evening unless you have any other questions or comments. All right, then let's close with prayer. Our Father, it is our privilege to rejoice in a true Savior. not a deified pagan sinner. It is a great joy to bow before the Lord Jesus, very God of very God, 
not a dissolute, vile pretender. You have granted us the good news of the tidings of true peace. Glory be to your name, Most High. Not the self-centered and narcissistic pretensions of those who use power to crush the weak and even the helpless. Thank you, Father of our Lord Jesus. By the power of your Spirit, we give you thanks for all these riches that are ours in Christ. And the antithesis which we enjoy in him that no power on earth can crush. No sword can kill. No power broker can demean and degrade. You and you alone are Savior, Lord, and Messiah. We worship and adore you and pray you will keep us unto that day. And we pray in the holy name of the babe of Bethlehem, Jesus of Nazareth, our Savior, Lord, and Christ. Amen.